Continuing now our analysis of de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville, in Book Two of his second volume, declares that democracy leads to a preference for equality over liberty. Moreover, equality can destroy liberty. Freedom does not require a democratic society or structure. A man can be free under other kinds of governmental structures. Moreover, equality is not necessarily realizable simply because men desire it. Wanting equality doesn't produce it. However, there is an advantage to equality as far as the political order is concerned. When equality becomes a political goal, achievement of it can, in some measure, be instantaneous. You can wipe out all the wealthy men by passing a law, confiscating everything, and you can then reduce them to inequality. Within a matter of a short time, Lenin reduced the people of, the Soviet, of Russia to equality by ordering the massive execution of all of the aristocrats, of all the nobility, and of large numbers of the middle class and military officers. There was instant equality. Britain, by a process of confiscation after World War II, introduced a considerable measure of instant equality. On the other hand, he pointed out, liberty has its advantages manifested only after a long period of time. A slave who is a slave may have certain advantages. He has security as far as food, shelter, clothing, and uh, the future is concerned. He has social security. On the other hand, if the slave is freed, the disadvantages of liberty are more manifest for a considerable length of time than any advantages. Because the first thing that hits him with liberty is the penalty of liberty, the liabilities of liberty. Because the advantages of equality are so readily discernible and those of liberty so slowly discernible, Equality in a democracy becomes very readily a political and a social goal. The mob wants immediate results, and the demand for liberty produces it. So, the talk bill commented, and I quote, I think that democratic communities have a natural taste for freedom. But themselves, they will seek it, cherish it, and view any privation of it with regret. But for equality, their passion is ardent insatiable, incessant, invincible. They call for equality and freedom. If they cannot obtain that, they still call for equality in slavery. They will endure poverty, servitude, barbarism. But they will not endure aristocracy. This is true at all times, and especially true in our time. All men and all power seeking to cope with this irresistible faction will be overthrown and destroyed by it. In our age, freedom cannot be established without it, and despotism itself cannot reign without support. This is a very telling passage. 
I recall some years ago reading a book on the Soviet Union and the Russian Revolution, and then also talking with a European who had traveled in the Soviet Union and who spoke Russian quite fluently. Europeans are not subjected to quite the same suspicion as Americans, and coming as he did from a small European country, he was not particularly a threat as an American or a Britisher might be regarded as being. Now, this book and this traveler alike pointed to a common fact. The Russian peasant, the Russian working man, looked back with grief at what he had done in the revolution. When the Soviet regime overthrew Kerensky's government, he had been incited to, and earlier had been also urged to participate in the destruction of the nobility and of the middle classes, of the manufacturers. Why? The land will be divided, the wealth will be divided, and you will get it. And nobody will be better than yourself. The result was, indeed, in the name of equality, he allowed himself to become party to a movement which led to the destruction of the old order. And then, indeed, he found equality in slavery. De Tocqueville's point, thus, is a very important one. De Tocqueville then goes on with a study of individualism. Now, this is a very interesting point that the translator found it necessary at this point to add a footnote explaining what the word individualism means, pointing out that it was a word unfamiliar to Americans, and that instead of trying to find a word to translate it, since we had none, he was simply going to use the French word individualism in English. Now, this may seem surprising. Prior to the Tocqueville, we had no such word as individualism? No, we did not. We have come to think of individualism as something highly American, as something that always existed. But we find that de Tocqueville coined more or less a French word, and now it has become a very much accepted word. Why was it that individualism was not known prior to this time? The answer is that man was not seen in terms of himself. This was a new factor. De Tocqueville here was particularly pregnant. This chapter is in, of individualism in a democratic country. He saw what was happening as a result of democracy, a very ugly and a dangerous tradition. Previously, instead of being known as an individual, understood in terms of yourself, you see the concept of autonomous man. The idea was not of autonomous man. No such principle as autonomous man was recognized. But this was a logical conclusion of modern philosophy. Previously, you would be known as, well a Thoburn or a Flanagan, or you would be described in terms of, well, a minister of the Munson Hill Presbyterian Church, 
You would be recognized thus in terms of your family or your calling. You would be a printer, a writer, a goldsmith. And you would be identified in relationship to other persons. You would be Lord Baltimore's agent. Or you would be identified as a close friend of so-and-so. You are understood in terms of a context, not just in terms of yourself. Now this, of course, meant a radically different perspective on man. A man belonged to a community, he belonged to a family, he belonged to a context. And in those days it was more common, therefore, for, say, someone to be disowned. As a person, you were largely identified in terms of your association, your connection, your relationship. We read today, but it's only in fiction of those days, black sheep of a family and being disowned. Never dar my door. Now, that's kind of a joke from melodramacy. Since you represented the family, if you failed to represent it, the family disowned you. We don't have this today, except among one group, what this group would be. The Orthodox Jews. Yes. Among the Orthodox Jews, if a son disgraces them, if they feel his course of action is shameful and an abandonment of the faith and hopelessly beyond what they consider tolerable, they will simply read the service of the dead over him in the family. And then they will say, we have no more a son or a daughter. He or she is dead. They will not recognize his uh, existence. They will tell everyone that this has been done. Our son is dead or our daughter is dead. So that that person no longer is to be identified in terms of them. But of course that's an anachronism now. Since individualism has taken over, the cry of you in our day, I want to be, I want to be myself. Now that is essentialism, the logical conclusion of Cartesian philosophy of Descartes. In Exodus, man is to understand in total isolation from his family, his heredity, any religious training or teaching, or his country, or his teachers, or his community. And he is to define himself in terms of his own lusts and appetites and desires. And so, under existentialism, you do have, indeed, individualism. I want to be myself. Now, de Tocqueville said, and I quote, aristocratic institutions have the effect of closely binding every man to several of his fellow citizens. Aristocracy had made a chain of all the members of the community, from the peasant to the king. Democracy breaks that chain and severs every link of it, unquote. Now, by aristocracy, he meant everything from a landed aristocracy as in some of the countries of Europe, to a situation where, as in colonial America, one man was an outstanding citizen, Squire Jones, everybody dipped their hat when he went down the street, good morning, Squire Jones, 
And because of his position, there was a prestige to what he did and everything that was attached to him, and there were loyalties to him. In my book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, I cite a custom in the Netherlands, whereby at market time, even though two men were deadly enemies and hated each other with a passion, when the farmers came on market day, it was the duty of any who were deadly enemies to lock arms, both men, and walk up and down the entire marketplace chatting. If they did not, they would be banned from the community. Why? Because they were not individualists. Their feeling was, your personal spites, your personal quarrels, no matter who's right and wrong, must not divide the community. So when we are in the marketplace, everybody talks to everybody, and you either walk up and down together and prove your friendship, or you're cut off, both of you, from the entire community. Well, you see how this retained association in the community. Now, we talk to said, democracy breaks this up. Instead of binding man to man, it isolates man from man, and it leads to the inability of people to tolerate each other and to tolerate one another's faults. And here I think the Tocqueville has one of his most brilliant, one of his most incisive insights into what democracy leads to. And I think it's at this point we need to examine ourselves and our lives because all of us have been infected by individualism and democracy at this point. To illustrate, when I was in on the Indian Reservation, I worked also in a sheep camp to the north, a little community, and also in some of the surrounding ranching country. And naturally, these were small communities. And in some of that ranching area, which was 100, 150 miles from a town or any bus or train line, very isolated, and you had only a handful of neighbors, it didn't mean they were all very sweet and agreeable people. Now, in view of the character of some of these people, and I got to know them, I sometimes wondered why they ever bothered ever to talk again to John Doe, let's say or Maryville, and I very quickly found out from them that no matter how difficult these people were, you did not break with them. You were a community. There would be a time when you would need them, and there would be a time when they needed you. And since you were a community, no matter how difficult they might be, or they might think you might be, you got along. Now, in our modern society, we have become too democratic and existentialist, and people are treated cheaply by all of us. Well, there are a million people round about. Where I live, there are five, six, seven million, and maybe nine, I don't know how many there are in Southern California. If so-and-so isn't going to see things my way, I might as well uh, boot him out, send him packing. I don't need him, but don't have to talk to him again. What this does is to make us less and less tolerant of human weaknesses and less and less ready to temper our own weaknesses. 
As a result, it becomes more and more difficult for people to get along together in a community, in a church, in an office, on a job, because this individualism, plus treating one another cheaply, feeling, well, I can make some new friends, or I can move somewhere else, leads to a radical independence for one another. To illustrate this again, I know a couple whom I regard as two of the most brilliant people I have ever known, husband and wife. They are Calvinists. They have, well, I would say a near genius, if not genius, abilities and uh, attitudes. However, because they have an independent income, they can live wherever they choose. So, at different times, they have lived in this area, they have lived in California, they have lived up and down the Pacific Coast, in the Midwest, and at any time, they can pick up the money, sell what they have, go somewhere else, buy some new furniture, move into an apartment, and as they get fed up with the people there, move on again. This has been the disaster in their lives. Precisely because they can do this so readily and so easily, two people who could be tremendous powers in terms of the Christian faith are irrelevant to it. They put up with nothing in anyone. They readily write people off. And just as readily make themselves irrelevant in one situation or another where they can be a tremendous power. You see, we tolerate very little in modern society. And we demand a great deal. To cite another illustration to confirm this tremendous insight on the part of the Pumpville. When I went to the university, one of the things that struck me very quickly was that here was the university at that time with about fourteen to 17,000 students. I think 14 when I started, 17,000 when I finished. Now it's two or three times that. And there were professors there who have classrooms held in an auditorium with 1,000 students present. And there would be others who would have a classroom with four or five students. What was the difference? One was a spellbinder of a lecturer and the other wasn't. It didn't mean they were equally good scholars of the, I would say, three scholars there who really had an influence on me and taught me a great deal. One was a very popular lecturer. The other two were not, and yet they taught me so much. One in particular is one of, was, who is now dead, one of the greatest scholars in this field that the world has seen. And yet I sat in classes on a campus of 17,000 people when I had his courses, and there would be four and five of us learning from that man. And if you would ask the average student, even in the department where he taught, what they thought of Dr. So-and-so, oh, that queer doc, you mean that bachelor who, uh, well, I could be interested in him, you see. It's Dellsville. And so they never learned from one of the greatest minds of our generation. 
You see, when we develop this democratic spirit, this existential temper, we tolerate so little in people that we miss out on a great deal of the world around us. This is one reason why, in the modern world, one country which has not yet caught this spirit has forged through the top. Because individualism has not taken over there. What nation is that? Japan, right. Japan. In Japan, when you hire a man, you keep him on until he is 55. And if you made a mistake, well, you live with your mistake and you're going to learn from it and you're going to teach him. And the employees feel that the employer is their father, in a sense. And he feels that he has a duty to protect them. Some of them are not as good children as others. It's a semi-feudal relationship. And as a result, there is a penalty in that you carry some people you would not otherwise carry, but there is a loyalty generated among all that leads the Japanese to command markets and to get work out of their employees that no other country is able to get. But of course, that's beginning to disappear in Japan. There are already signs of serious erosion. The habit of looking at people as individuals, purely economically, do the job or get out, not the personal element, the personal relationship, which creates in everyone a loyalty. So, Tocqueville says, what the democratic spirit leads to is loose ties, less and less ability to depend on your friends, less and less ability to depend on your relatives. That's an interesting point, too. You know, there was a time not too many years ago in this country when if you were traveling somewhere and you had a second cousin or a third cousin and he knew you were going to be in the area, they would expect you to stay with them. And they'd take a delight in seeing a relative again. Now, if you tried to stay with your first cousin or a relative close to that, they'd wonder, what in the world do you expect from us? You're a freeloader. You see, ties have been weakened by the democratic temper. However, said Tocqueville, in America, the effect of individualism is combated by the free institutions. First of all, by political freedom, working together on the local level, local self-government in the local community. He said, this brings them together in the town meetings and so on. And an aspect of local government that has since, of course, largely disappeared as we become large urban complexes. You no longer have that sense of working together with people in your community that you did have when each community was a very small entity. You can imagine, for example, if we were to jump back a hundred years and you had a small community like Clifton is now, and the people of Clifton came together to debate and to discuss uh, self-government and taking care of the problems in the area, working together on things, you see. Now, when you had that kind of situation, there was, as the Tocqueville saw, an undercutting of the effect of individualism. Then second, private associations. What we dealt with earlier as 
tithe agencies and the like. And here he says some things about it that I think I would like to quote uh, to a degree. He declares, the Americans make associations to give entertainments, to found establishments for education, to build inns, to construct churches, to diffuse books, to send missionaries to the Antipodes, and in this manner they found hospitals, prisons, and schools. Interesting point. Even prisons were established so that you could deal with them as Christians. There's almost no area that they didn't work in. If it be proposed to advance some truth or to foster some feeling by the encouragement of a great example, they form a society. Wherever at the head of some new undertaking you see the government in France or a man of rank in England, in the United States you will be sure to find an association. I met with several kinds of associations in America, uh, which I confess I had no previous notion, and I have often admired the extreme skill with which the inhabitants of the United States succeed in proposing a common object to the exertions of a great many men and in getting them voluntarily to pursue it. Then he continues, the government might perform the part of some of the largest American companies, and several states' members of the Union have already attempted it. But what political power could ever carry on the vast multitude of lesser undertakings which the American citizens perform every day? with the assistance of the principle of association. It is easy to foresee that the time is drawing near when man will be less and less able to produce of himself alone the commonest necessaries of life. The task of the governing power will therefore perpetually increase, and its very efforts will extend it every day. The more it stands in the place of associations, the more will individuals losing the notion of combining together requires assistance. These are causes and effects which unceasingly engender each other. Will the administration of the country ultimately assume the management of all the manufactures which no single citizen is able to carry on? In other words, he talked this said, in case you didn't grasp quality, implied that. Here we have all these associations taking care of doing this, that, and the other thing. It's this kind of initiative which also leads them to this tremendous free enterprise, this voluntary principle. Now, if this voluntary association philosophy dies out, the government is going to take over more and more, doing these things which people were doing with their tithe money, with their gifts. And how long will business as a free enterprise endure beyond the life of these private associations? Will not government at the same time come into this area also and attempt progressively to manage all business life, all economic life in the community, in the nation? And of course, the Tokyo was right. The voluntary associations disappeared and then controls of economic life began in this country. And I submit that the way to freeing the economic life and the political life is to begin again with the voluntary associations. And this is why the Christian school movement and every kind of tithe agency that rises is so important. Now, he continues, a government can no more be competent to keep alive and to renew the circulation of opinions and feelings among a great people than to manage all speculation of productive industry. 
No sooner does a government attempt to go beyond its political sphere and to enter upon this new track than it exercises, even unintentionally, an insupportable tyranny. For a government can only dictate strict rules. The opinions which it favors are rigidly enforced, and it is never easy to discriminate between its advice and its commands. Worse still will be the case if the government really believes itself interested in preventing, preventing all circulation of ideas. It will then stand motionless and oppressed by the heaviness of voluntary purpose. Governments, therefore, should not be the only active powers. Associations ought in democratic nations to stand in lieu of those powerful private individuals whom the equality of conditions has swept away. Aha, he has made an interesting comparison, has he not? Once there were great lords, who in France, in Germany, in England, commanded vast areas of activity, and people were governed by them. And it was a measure of freedom in that they were not directly under the tyranny of the central state. The private associations, he said, are, in a sense, like feudal lords. Every private association controls an area of human activity that cre creates a corporate, an associative aristocracy. And if government tries to be the only active power, it will destroy itself and it will destroy the country. So if you're not going to have a feudal nobility to guide the people and to govern them, on the local level, you're going to have to have these private associations to act as government in vast areas of life, or else there is a total collapse into tyranny and stagnation. Tremendous insight, isn't it? Etoffville is really a remarkable man. As soon as several of the inhabitants of the United States have taken up an opinion or a feeling, which they wish to promote in the world, they look out for mutual assistance. And as soon as they have found each other, they combine. From that moment, they are no longer isolated men, but a power seen from afar, whose actions serve for an example and whose language is listened to. The first time I heard in the United States that a hundred thousand men had bound themselves publicly to abstain from spiritist liquors, it appeared to me more like a joke than a serious engagement. And I did not at once perceive why these temperate citizens could not content themselves with drinking water by their own firesides. In other words, here are a hundred thousand men who have taken a temperance pledge never to touch liquor again. Well, says Tuckville, let them do it. Why not by their fireside? Why band together in a temperance association so you know exactly how many American men have taken the pledge? He said, it didn't make sense to me at first, but then I understood. I at last understood that these hundred thousand Americans, alarmed by the progress of drunkenness around them, had made up their minds to patronize temperance. They acted just in the same way as a man of high rank, that is a nobleman, who should dress very plainly in order to inspire the humbler orders with a contempt for luxury. It is probable that if these hundred thousand men had lived in France, each of them would singly have memorialized the government to watch the public houses all over the kingdom. 
nothing, in my opinion, is more deserving of our attention than the intellectual and moral associations of America. In other words, he said, in Europe, they would have petitioned the state to do something about it, but they would have petitioned individually. In America, they united to try to set an example for all the people. They function as a new nobility in their associations. The associations constitute a new government comparable to the old feudal laws. The political and industrial associations of that country strike us forcibly. But the others elude our observation, or if we discover them, we understand them imperfectly, because we have hardly ever seen anything of the kind. It must, however, be acknowledged that they are as necessary to the American people as the former, and perhaps more so. In other words, these voluntary associations are more necessary in America than the political and industrial aspects of the country. In democratic countries, the science of association is the mother of science. The progress of all the rest depends upon the progress it has made. Among the laws which rule human societies, there is one which seems to be more precise and clear than all others. If men are to remain civilized or become so, the art of associating together must grow and improve in the same ratio in which the equality of conditions is increased." Unquote. Then de Tocqueville went on to deal with newspapers. He said, in America, newspapers have replaced authorities in the old world. Where in Europe a bishop or a lord or a prominent person speaks and everybody is concerned know what is going on through his declaration, here you read the paper. And the papers supply the data, supposedly, to make up your own mind. But actually, they function as authorities. They make it for you. However, he said, newspapers, therefore, become more necessary in proportion as become, men become more equal and individualism more to be feared. The evil which they produce, however, is much less than that which they cure, unquote. And the reason why is, in spite of their evils, the good they do is better because they further common activity. They bring the people together when individualism is actually dividing them to give them some kind of common interest. He says further, the power of the newspaper press must therefore increase as the social conditions of men become more equal, unquote. In other words, the more democracy increases, the more the power of the communication media will increase. Whether it was the newspaper in his day or it is television now, since men get less of their guidance from the pulpit, and from friends, and from the family, they are going to depend upon it more from the communications media. The press in his day, and today the press, radio, television. However, he says, after considering all these various aspects, political associations have strengthened the state, and freedom here, by and large, has been beneficial. 
And so, despite his fears concerning the future of democracy, he does feel he has to commend the United States on the whole. Then he goes on to a discussion of the principle of interest. Interest, he says, is the enlightened regard for yourself, which leads Americans to public action and effort. It's a kind of liberal philosophy which had been more or less combined with a semi-Christian position to lead to the belief that self-interest was basic to progress. He declares, I do not think upon the whole that there is more egotism among us than in America. The only difference is that there it is enlightened, here it is not. Every American will sacrifice a portion of his private interests to preserve the rest. We would fain preserve the whole, and oftentimes the whole is lost. Americans, in other words, feel that if they are going to think about their self-interest, if they are going to be selfish, they had better also think of other people, because they are going to sink or swim in terms of what happens to their country. Therefore, they have a tendency to justify participation in common ventures in spite of their individualism. In fact, he said they go so far as to use this self-interest to justify Christianity. After all, they say in America, don't go reports, the church is good for the community. Therefore, I'm going to support the church, whether I'm entirely in agreement with it or not, because the church does a great deal for the children and for my family and every family. Therefore, in terms of my enlightened self-interest, it is better for me the favor of the church, whatever my personal feelings may be. Moreover, he says, within the church there is also this very practical attitude of enlightened self-interest. So the church furthers an attitude of practical emphasis on the affairs of everyday life. Let us do all that we can to build up this community, to conquer it for Christ, because we live here and if we don't make it a good community, we shall suffer for it. And so, he Tocqueville points out, Christianity in America is pragmatically helpful in furthering a better life on earth, whereas in Europe, the churches are inclined to be otherworldly. They talk more about heaven than about earth. In America, the message of the church is more concerned with life here and our duties here and now than with heaven. We might add parenthetically, this was a product of the post-millennial emphasis in American faith. Then he said, in America, in terms of this interest in the here and now in this world, one of the most common characteristics of Americans is their strong sense of hope. They expect to get ahead. In Europe, a man who is born in a poor family expects to live and die a poor man. He is a man who feels that that is his station in life, and not often does he rise above it. However, he said, the poorest man in America hopes and expects and dreams about getting rich. A love of well-being is the predominant taste of the nation. There is an overwhelming desire for advantages, for getting ahead. And he said, 
There is an ever brooding for advantages they do not possess. A native of the United States clings to this world's goods as if he were certain never to die. And he is so hasty in grasping at all within his reach that one would suppose he was constantly afraid of not living long enough to enjoy it. He clutches everything. He holds nothing fast, but soon loosens his grasp to pursue fresh gratifications. Moreover, he says, in America, men are always thinking of something better, so they're ready to drop what they have to pursue something else. So, he says, in the United States, a man builds a house to spend his latter years in it, and he sells it before the roof is on it. He plants a garden and left it just as the trees are coming into bearing. He brings into a field into tillage and leaves other men to gather the crops. He embraces a profession and gives it up. He settles in a place which he soon afterward leaves to carry his changeable longings elsewhere. If his private affairs leave him any leisure, he instantly plunges into the vortex of politics. And if at the end of a year of unremitting labor he finds he has a few days vacation, his eager curiosity whirls him over the vast extent of the United States, and he will travel 1,500 miles in a few days to shake off his happiness. Death at last overtakes him, but it is before he is weary of his bootless chase of that complete felicity which is forever on the wing. Now, Americans have not changed much since then. I forget who it was who was telling me last week of a five-day vacation in which they drove from Virginia to San Francisco and back. <laughs> And the Chuckville in his day describing traveling 1,500 miles in a few days, well, in those days on horseback or by carriage, you did not travel very many miles in a day. So traveling 1,500 miles in a few days was a remarkable thing. And yet I have heard people talk about uh, how short a time it took them to get from one end of the country to the other. As a matter of fact, I once knew an attorney who was figuring out how he could set a record getting from Los Angeles to New York with his two sons by carrying, by uh, installing a very large tank. And it would not be necessary for him to make any stops, and he was even going to carry toilet facilities in the car. He had an ingenious rig that he was working out in this uh, recreation vehicle. The only thing that prevented him from ever trying it, and there was a an automobile company which was ready to go along with him to advertise the car that was going to be a campaign promoted was that his wife put her foot down and said, absolutely not. But I think it was a typically American thing to dream about doing something like that. Andy Tocqueville speaks very accurately that long ago about the restless spirit of the Americans in the midst of their prosperity. Their taste for physical gratification must be regarded as the original source of that secret inquietude which the actions of the Americans betray and of that inconstancy of which they afford fresh examples every day. He who has set his heart exclusively upon the pursuit of worldly welfare is always in a hurry, for he has but a limited time at his disposal to reach it, to grasp it, and to enjoy it. The recollection of the brevity of life is a constant spur to him.
Now, uh, he does speak, of course, of virtuous democratic materialism. He is aware that in America, in spite of this materialism, there is a strong sense of godliness. The effect of morality and religion is so strong in this country that he can speak of it as a virtuous materialism. His impression of frontier religion, which we discussed a few nights ago, was not very favorable. And he commented, and I quote, religious insanity is very common in the United States. And uh, he simply, being a gentleman, passes over the camp meetings with a reference to them. To a European, what went on at the camp meetings in the way of the jerks and the uh, noise was simply incomprehensible. De Tocqueville was, however, uh, fully aware of the fact that the American has a desire at all times to get ahead. And the result is a tremendous pressure upon Americans at all times to do more and more, to get something better, to move, to find a new job, to find a new location, creating a tremendous restlessness and a lack of permanence in communities. However, he said, one of the very happy aspects of American life is that all honest callings are honorable. Labor is respected. As a result, as I pointed out on a previous occasion, it took Bill noted that if anyone became so wealthy in this country that they wanted to be the idle rich to work no more, to retire, they had to go to Europe. People would regard them as shameful creatures in the United States. You worked, period, as long as you were physically able. And so he concluded, in the United States, professions are more or less laborious, more or less profitable, but they are never either high or low. Every honest calling is honorable. This is not as true as it was then. As we have fallen sway to influences from Europe, to socialism, to the ideas of Rousseau, we have forsaken that earlier spirit of respect for every kind of labor. It still prevails here to a degree unequaled in the world. I recall 